The Writer Files, a member of the Podglomerate Network. I want to mention a great resource for writers, and this month's sponsor, Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. I'll expound later in the show, but the short version is this long-awaited book about the craft of creative writing from New York Times bestselling author Steve Almond sets out to debunk the well-meaning but misguided myths that hold us back from writing our deepest and most honest work. Pick up a copy today of Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, wherever you buy books, more soon. Greetings, scribes. I have got some exciting news to share. The Writer Files now has an exclusive Patreon community where subscribers will get exclusive access to uncut ad-free interviews, a writer's happy hour, bonus breakdowns, and content from productivity and publishing experts each month. In the meantime, just head over to patreon.com slash thewriterfiles. It's free to join Patreon to get a preview and you can upgrade anytime. That's patreon.com slash thewriterfiles. Help us start something special. The Writer Files is brought to you by Studio Press, the industry standard for premium WordPress themes and plugins. Built on the Genesis framework, Studio Press delivers state-of-the-art SEO tools, beautiful and fully responsive design, airtight security, instant updates, and much more. If you're ready to take your WordPress site to the next level, see for yourself why over 177,000 website owners trust Studio Press. Go to rainmaker.fm slash studiopress right now. That's rainmaker.fm slash studiopress. These are the Writer Files, a tour of the habits, habitats, and brains of working writers, from online content creators to fictionists, journalists, entrepreneurs, and beyond. I'm your host, Calvin Reed writer, podcaster, and mediophile. And each week, we'll discover how great writers keep the ink flowing, the cursor moving, and avoid writer's block. Welcome to another segment of The Writer's Brain, where I pick the brain of a neuroscientist about the elements of great writing. This week's show covers some possible origins and solutions to an ailment known only to writers. Research scientist Michael Gribko of the Department of Psychology at the University of Washington returned to help me pinpoint the mysteries of writer's block from a scientific standpoint. If you missed the first three installments of The Writer's Brain on how neuroscience defines creativity, empathy, and storytelling, you can find them all in the show notes and on writerfiles.fm. Join us for this two-part interview, and if you're a fan of the show, please click subscribe to automatically see new interviews and help other writers to find us. In part one of the file, Michael and I discuss why writers argue about the definition of writer's block, what happens when your creativity dries up, how to find your most productive writing time, why writers need to unplug to recharge, and how an incubation phase can vastly improve your writing. And we are rolling on the writer files once again with the illustrious Michael Gripko. Thank you so much for taking time out to rap with me about the dreaded writer's block, something that we talk, have talked about um, in the past, but never really discussed from a scientific standpoint. Right. Yeah. Another exciting topic and it's my pleasure to be back. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I am really interested to get into this and, and pick your brain about it. It's a question that I ask 
writers on the show, authors on the show, you know, just kind of if they believe in it. And I have asked in the past kind of like how, how they deal with it. And I think it's a contested subject. It really is. Um, it's something that it, it's almost like there's a dividing line. Like there's the, the writers that don't believe in it. They're like, ah, it's not a thing. And then there are writers that um, do believe in it or have, or believe in it because they know somebody's had it or, or, or they just um, kind of, uh, empathize right, right. <laughs> with those who have had it, but they've never had it themselves. And that's not surprising. Um, <laughs> you know, there's going to be a lot of individual differences, a lot of personality differences. Yeah. And as we'll get into later, you know, these, these may affect how prone someone is to being blocked. So yeah, yeah it's not, it's not surprising to see all these discrepancies here. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, to kind of kick it off, I mean, one uh, piece that you and I have passed back and forth was a New Yorker piece that Maria Konnikova wrote titled How to Beat Writer's Block. And what I found most interesting about this um, was kind of the origins of the term writer's block. Uh, she had kind of tracked down to this Freudian psychiatrist named Edmund Bergler, B-E-R-G-L-E-R, who had studied writers for a couple decades and came to some pretty interesting conclusions. And in 1950, he published a paper called Does Writer's Block Exist?, in a journal founded by Freud, it appears. And he, you know, came to some really interesting conclusions, which I think you will confirm, you know, just to kind of go back to that dividing line, you know, from Toni Morrison to uh, Joyce Carol Oates, a lot of famous writers have argued about writer's blog itself, but, but never really can define it. So I think, you know, Ms. Morrison told her students, that writer's block should be respected. Like it was a thing not to try to write through it. Ms. Oates believed that it didn't exist, but admitted that when you're trying to do something prematurely, it just won't come out. Like certain subjects need time. They need uh, marination, if you will, uh, before they can be written about. And then, you know, on on the far end of the spectrum, we've got writers like Stephen Pressfield, you know, from his classic War of Art that, that kind of, likens it more to a supernatural force inside of the writer uh, <laughs> called resistance, which I love. I mean, I think, I think it's a great uh, kind of an idea, um, but it's this repelling force that, that keeps us aware, distracts us from our work. Writers just, you know, aren't all, aren't all on the same page. Um, but now science is kind of offering us a, a glimpse of what's going on inside the writer's brain again. Again, like I said, I, you know, it's, it's not surprising. There's all these different viewpoints. Um, and that kind of gets to the heart of writer's block. Um, it is a personal issue and there's different moods and we'll get into some of that. And I think there's a lot of reasons for writer's block. Um, one, and some of them really aren't even a neuroscience problem or are hard to touch on. And I think one, you know, just not having enough time, that happens. We can't just can't get to something. And then sometimes I think another thing, they were just not even interested in the topic and then it can be hard to write about or work on if we lose our passion. Um, So those are things I think are hard to touch on or not too interesting from the neuroscience perspective. But one of the causes for writer's block that we may be able to get into from a neuroscience perspective is this loss in creativity. Mm, And we we had an episode on creativity and we kind of defined creativity as as an idea that's novel, good, and useful. Right. And so for this episode, I thought, well, what happens 
when the creative process breaks down um, and we have a deficit of creativity yeah. and what can lead to that and what are some of the what's going on in the neurons that may may facilitate or or uh, writer's block or a deficit <laughs> right 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 <laughs> there you go so um exactly yeah and i'll link to that creativity episode in fact i'll link to um the other um all three of the the all right. neuroscience writers files that we've done and you said in that particular episode you said um you were talking about this particular area called the caudate nucleus that's active during writing right um can you can you just kind of touch on that again or can we revisit uh what that does for us right so this was yeah we i think this was one of the Articles was it in the New Yorker that that you turned me on to? Um, but writers were being compared to pro athletes. I forgot what. Yeah, came yeah. From. I think it was but a New York yeah. Times article. New York Times. Okay. And and yeah, I went back to the original research, and they showed that this area in the brain called the caudate, caudate nucleus was active in writers when they were doing their thing, and this was a similar area, um, or this area was shown to be active in. Um, things like athletes, piano players. Um, So that was a little surprising um, to the researchers. But I don't think it's it's all that surprising when you pull away from things a bit and um, think about how the brain works. So I want to kind of go back and talk about creativity again. please. And again, it'll be good that you link to the the old episode so I don't have to go over everything again. Right. So one of the things we talked about in creativity is how knowledge is stored and information is stored in the brain. And briefly, knowledge really isn't stored like in a neuron. One neuron doesn't hold a piece of information. It's, it's represented, knowledge is represented as a group of neurons and how they behave both temporally and spatially. So it's the firing of large numbers of neurons, which represents certain information and knowledge. Now, the brain has been broken up into a lot of different regions, and we've kind of attached some functionality to these regions. For instance, hippocampus um, is known for for memory, spatial memory, uh, prefrontal cortex, kind of executive function. Um, Cerebellum has been linked to movement. And although there is functionality in these, these areas, it's not just these areas that control that aspect of a behavior. And all these areas are connected with one, one another, um, albeit some of these are, connections are indirect, but ultimately the brain is one organ. Mm-hmm. And it's not like a linear set of processes that happens to um, lead to a behavior. So this being said, this is really sets the framework that allows us to be creative. This, um, this kind of firing pattern in areas that fluctuates as behaviors change. And it's this kind of aspect of brain function that makes us associative learners and allows us to recognize these relationships between disparately connected items, sure. which is really the, the, the hallmark of being creative. So unfortunately, this connectedness can kind of have a downside, and I think <laughs> that's what also leads to being to writer's block. So, for instance, 
our emotions can impact our productivity on a task. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's other, you know, there's post-traumatic stress, traumatic brain injuries, and they, although they may impact specifically one area of the brain, that may end up, because of this connectedness, that may end up having widespread effects and affect our behavior and our ability to perform on other tasks. So, you know, when an activity in the area of brain that is responsible for processing information we need to write effectively, then we may end up with writer's block. Yeah, yeah. Earlier in the show, I mentioned an invaluable resource for writers. Truth is the arrow, mercy is the bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories based on three decades of writing, failing, and trying again. Author Steve Almond is a beloved professor at Harvard and Wesleyan and the acclaimed New York Times bestseller of 12 books of fiction and nonfiction. And in Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, Steve employs the radical empathy he displayed as a co-host of the Dear Sugars podcast with Cheryl Strayed, where they explored the joys and trials of storytelling to explode myths that hold us back from writing our deepest and truest work. The book includes chapters on plot, character, and chronology, but travels far beyond the earnest intentions of most craft books. It also includes writing prompts to generate new work. Pulitzer Prize-winning author Richard Russo called it one of the best books on writing he's ever read, and also the funniest. Pick up a copy of Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories wherever you buy books, and add it to your TBR today. And just a quick aside to revisit the exclusive Writer Files Patreon community where subscribers get access to uncut ad-free interviews, a writer's happy hour, bonus breakdowns, and a lot more. I know that for serious writers, it can be more distracting than ever to cut through the noise, stay productive, and home in on what's happening in the publishing industry. Over eight years, we've provided a looking glass into the habits of professional writers and publishing industry insiders. And as your humble host, I've decided to launch a membership-based Patreon for serious scribes to cut through the noise, swap tips and tricks, and hang out with like-minded peers. Just head over to patreon.com slash the writer files for bonus writing resources, monthly episode breakdowns, writer's happy hour, a community of your peers, ad-free episodes, and more. It's free to join to get a preview and you can upgrade anytime. That's patreon.com slash the writer files. Help us start something cool and special. Keep calm and write on. So that brings us to the kind of the million dollar question for you um how do we how do we avoid that <laughs> right <laughs> oh boy big Drum moment roll, please I, i'm responsible now <laughs> no um, i know i know there are lots of facets to this and and honestly are. like some of it um is a little over my head okay way over my head but uh it does make a lot of sense that um you know there's not just one cause and or effect um but there's lots of stuff going on so so how yes what are some of the things um that we can kind of touch on in this (laughs) session without talking for eight hours yeah for me for what i do i look at um how neurons behave with certain behaviors that's that's my training is so that's on these topics that's what i like to look for is um what are some possible neuronal mechanisms behind these these behaviors and these these things we see for sure so when i started thinking about this one of the things i came up with was time management we started off talking about well w- one aspect of time management is just making sure we have enough time in the day to do all the things we need to get done 
And if you don't have enough time to get to the writing, you just don't get to it. And that's something we really can't deal with. Um, <laughs> I can't from a neuroscience perspective. That's a scheduling issue. You have to go talk to your boss or something. And I don't know. Um, but there is one aspect of time management I think gets overlooked a lot when people are putting their schedules together, you know, getting their, filling out their Google calendars, whatever. Mm-hmm. And that's not only making sure we have enough time to get all the things we need to do done in a day or get to, but also making sure we're doing things at the appropriate time. Yeah. And I think this really gets overlooked um, because there's, there's quite a bit of research out there showing neuronal activity patterns are influenced by environmental factors that are out of our control. Right. Um, a great example of this is something a lot of people know about, and that's the circadian rhythm. You know, also, yep. also called sleep-wake cycle, light-dark cycle, and obvious example, at night we sleep, at day we're awake, you know, and at the light. Yep. But I think what people don't realize is that throughout the day, even though we're awake, there could be specific times within the day the changes fluctuate over time. There could be specific tasks that we're better at at certain times of the day. Just to kind of touch on that a little bit as you're getting into it, let's see, uh, Maria Popova um, did a, uh, a really pretty cool collaboration with an artist called Famous Writers Sleep Habits and Literary Pro- Productivity. And although all the writers have different kind of sleep patterns, a lot of them were very prolific. Uh, mm-hmm. They had just figured out their circadian rhythms is what I'm assuming. Right. right. Yeah. And this is, well, we're getting back to an area where we're going to see a lot of individual differences. Um, yeah. yeah. Not surprising. People are going to have different habits. And although they may be for- performing a similar task, someone may be a morning person, someone may be a night person. Yeah. Um, and there's, there's evidence from, from, there's some experimental evidence to support this. And circadian rhythms are, are studied pretty extensively. And there's, and this is just one example of the rhythms that happen in our brain, this oscillatory behavior. And, but we'll just stick to the circadian rhythms. Um, so back in like the early 90s, a group, I think it's Hoffman and Balshun, showed that mice acquired knowledge needed to navigate a maze faster during the dark phase of the light-dark cycle. And mice are nocturnal, so that's not too surprising. Yeah. But then another group, um, led by Cowell in UCLA, kind of showed a different type of memory, this tone-associated fear conditioning, hmm. was acquired more rapidly in the light phase. But then they also went to show that the recall of this memory, this tone-associated um, fear conditioning, was more pronounced during the day as well. So this is really interesting. So it's, it's pointing to this idea that it's not just generally we're more alert at a certain point of, point of the day, but it could be task-specific. And gaining knowledge and recalling knowledge, we may be better at these things at different times in the day. Mm-hmm. So for a writer, I'm thinking, you know, really take a look at, sort of self-reflect, take a look at your yeah. habits and what are the best times for you to do certain tasks during the day? And maybe researching a topic, there may be a certain time of day where research is good for you, and maybe later in the day, a different time when actually writing about it may be different. Exactly. May, or you may be more proficient at it. So, um, yeah, do a little self-reflecting and keep this in mind, and um, this may help stave off writer's block. If, if you're not doing the appropriate task at the appropriate time, 
yeah. you know, you may not be your most productive. Yeah, so. absolutely. You know, different, different writers research, uh, better and more effectively kind of first thing in the morning. So, and some writers are sleeping. That time. Right, right, right. Um, I've interviewed lots of writers and it, they all have seem to have this kind of different scheduling mechanism ability to really focus and, and find, um, flow at different times. I'm, I'm thinking of Dean Wesley Smith, prolific, prolific sci-fi writer who doesn't really get started until, you know, late, late in the evening when things are quiet. Um, kind of like Balzac, for instance. Okay. Um, late night writers. And then some of these writers who, you know, only can only, some of these journalists, for instance, can, can only find that same quiet, like first thing in the morning, like right at dawn. Um, right. A lot of famous writers have had that. So, so yeah, tune in and figure out what your schedule is and, and when you're most productive. That can be a very important aspect to uh, avoiding writer's block. Absolutely. Um, I want to talk a little bit about multitasking and uh, a term given to some entrepreneurs and uh, writers, the workaholic. And, you know, I'm seeing more and more evidence that these things are not good for us. <laughs> right. I identify, I identify a little bit with the kind of the workaholic thing. And I'm definitely somebody who, you know, when I get into a bad space, can multitask terribly and effectively. But I think I'm getting stuff done. Right, right, right. Um, you know, I'm not sure of the neurological basis for this. I mean, there's, there is a lot coming out now about just how much an individual can work and be productive. And and there does seem to be a point where we're still working a lot, but really not doing much. Um, Yeah, yeah. And even though we think we are, we're we're a lot of times doing more harm than good. This is unfortunately a really complex behavior, and it's hard to find an animal model for this. Animals generally aren't workaholics. Like, you don't see the mouse still trying to figure out the maze usually like they usually yeah. just quit they, they they're quick to throw in the towel or like no yeah too well, complicated i'm done that probably goes without saying that <laughs> that um that kind of behavior is gonna affect other other parts of your life negatively yeah absolutely. um relationships for instance you need some work-life balance probably so there's gonna be yeah i think so and and i think getting off topic is very important for a while um having something to do outside of work absolutely um, downtime i think is yeah what you're downtime but also having your downtime be active having some hobbies there still engaging sure sure uh, yeah. well I, I did want to just touch back quickly on um something that i know has been <laughs> uh a topic of um you know that's been bandied back and forth and it's something I know that some of my coworkers do and they take a nap during the middle of the day and, but you know, most of them work remotely. So that's like they work at home and right. they can do that. And I'm seeing more and more evidence that, you know, some of these bigger, um, kind of more enlightened tech companies are offering things like sleep pods and places right, for right. employees to take naps around the office because you know what, it's been shown to boost productivity. Right. That probably fits right back into that circadian. Yeah, and and just the benefits of sleep. Again, we don't know exactly what's going on. Sleep's sleep's really important. 
it's a hard topic to discover at the or to explore at the neurological level because you know we have to be able to peer into side inside an individual's head yeah. and that's a hard thing to do to look inside someone's head an individual's head while they're sleeping because <laughs> most methods are are prohibitive to sleep <laughs> right so but yeah it's you know we're starting to get there and and we're starting to understand some of the some of the changes that happen to the brain and the benefits of sleeping. Yeah. And, and then I think a lot of this is also just our society is changing and our habits are changing with the internet. Like you said, now we can work from home a lot more. Um, mm-hmm. The, the workday isn't nine to five really anymore. And, you know, people work late at night, but then they take breaks during the day and this is being accepted. So yeah, there's a lot of cultural shifts that are happening as well. And I think, yeah, we'll see how it goes, but it's giving people a lot more freedom. And and now, since we're not crammed into that those banker's hours of when we have to be productive, maybe we can start being productive during times when it's best for us. Yeah. We're not confined to the office anymore in the office hours. So. Absolutely. Well, so another topic that came up when when I was thinking about this, when I was contemplating what do I say about writer's block? Is there in what's going on in the brain? Um, something I stumbled upon is this idea of an incubation stage. And mm-hmm. a lot of people talk about this. Um, and there's a lot of self-reporting and, and some eh, antidotal evidence out there that this is important. And, and there's some human research showing that an incubation stage is beneficial to creativity. Mm-hmm. And one thing I came across when I was... Looking at this, I remember the story about this guy, Kerry Mullis, who's now has a Nobel Prize. He invented PCR, polymerase chain reaction, which is this widely used um, biochemical assay. Um, it's used now in forensics, in, in, in just all over the place. And he was working on something else. It was similar to PCR, but he was, he, was, he was in the lab trying to figure out an essay how to improve the yield of a certain reaction. And he got out of the lab, and he was driving on the highway in California, in California, and he just pulled over, and basically the idea of PCR hit him, the, hmm. the necessary reaction. And it was, and that got me thinking about this incubation stage. So and I'm trying to think, well, what's going on? Why is taking a break from a task important how does that is there anything going on in the brain that could be beneficial or happening mm-hmm. and you know i came across i realized you know there's some research in animals models showing um this this phenomenon known as what's been termed replay and this is some work done by lauren frank in in uc san francisco that showed in the hippocampus um there's a specific neural activity that is observed in animals when they're learning a task. Mm. And then this activity, what's interesting, this activity continues or is replayed when the animal stops performing the task. And then they went on to show that disrupting this activity during these idle periods may could um, also disrupt learning. The animal would just not behave as well as mm. on the task later. So... You know, this is, again, this is animals. We obviously have to put a few asterisks here. But I think what this does demonstrate is there could be some important neuronal activity happening 
even when we're away from the task. Absolutely. That's important to us accomplishing our goals. Um, what's interesting to me in this is there's no way to ask the animals in the study, <laughs> like, were you thinking about what you were doing or was this just happening? So there's no way to know if the incubation stage, if we're consciously aware of this neuronal activity or if this is going on without us being aware. Yeah. You know, but if we could come up with a way to ask the mice and rats, you know, all right, are you thinking about the maze right now or is this happening independently of you thinking about it? But for sure. It's kind of a side note. Thanks so much for joining us for a glimpse into the workings of the writer's brain. For more episodes of The Writer Files or to simply leave us a comment or a question, drop by writerfiles.fm. You can always chat with me on Twitter at Kelton Reed. Cheers. Talk to you next week. Mm-hmm.